If you have your Bibles and you're there at 2 Kings chapter 2, let's stand together and we'll read a few verses and then I'll let you be seated. 2 Kings chapter number 2 and we'll start reading in verse number 9. It says, And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elisha that fell from him, and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and smote the waters, and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Thank you. You may be seated. Here in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, we find the account of Elijah being taken away. The prophet Elijah was a very unique prophet. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that uh, he was a very bold prophet. It was Elijah that contended with the 450 false prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets there at uh, Mount Carmel. And it was where Elijah there called down fire from heaven to devour that sacrifice, that drenched sacrifice, and then slew those prophets. I mean, this was a, a pretty intense guy. This was a, a pretty intense Prophet. It was Elijah that stood boldly against King Ahab, the, the wicked king there, and prophesied judgment against him. It was the same Elijah that prophesied that Jezebel would be eaten by dogs. It was a Elijah that God had used to raise the widow's son from the dead. It was Elijah that God fed uh, with ravens by the brook Cherith. It was Elijah that saw God provide food through the widow's cruise and through the barrel of meal that didn't run out. And it was the prophet Elijah that God used to prophesy that it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years uh, as a means of God's judgment. You know, you talk about a prophet. I mean, that's a prophet. That's a man of God. That's somebody who is willing to proclaim God's truth and to take a stand uh, for God. He was the prophet of prophets. You know, Elijah's name, it means my God is Jehovah. And I believe that everybody who came in contact with Elijah found that out, that his God is Jehovah. They saw God work on his behalf and, and through him multiple times. And now we see here that it's time for Elijah to depart from this world. It's time for him to leave. God is, is calling him to, to come and to be with him. And, and once again, we see this take place in a miraculous display. I mean, you talk about a way to go out. I mean, fire, you know, chariots and, and you're just being taken out by a whirlwind. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty exciting stuff. I mean, you can see the, God's power again in his life. And we see, though, with the passing of the prophet Elijah, there's this void that's created. A huge void. I mean, you think about it. Without Elijah, the, the prophet, the one who was proclaiming God's truth, the one that was standing uh, for God there in Israel. Man, Israel's in a mess. And we see here that Elisha, he's, he, uh, when he sees his uh, mentor departing, he's mourning. Why? Because he's lost a man of God. 
He was, the, he was mourning the one that he had spent the last decade of his life following. His mentor, his discipler, his teacher. And not only was he mourning what he personally had lost. I mean, think about it. Think about how close you'd get to somebody when you're, you're fellowshipping with them on a daily basis. And you're walking with them and you're being trained with them. And they're teaching you what they know. And now he's gone. But not only did he suffer a great loss, but he realizes my nation suffered a great loss. Israel's suffered a great loss in Elijah being taken away. They had lost a mouthpiece for God. Israel couldn't afford to lose men like Elijah. Israel couldn't afford to be without his influence and without his uh, influence for righteousness. I mean, who's going to stand up against those that defy God? Who's going to lead the nation in the spiritual paths that they need to be following? Who's going to be their man of God? And Elisha knew that that Israel had lost someone very valuable. And so we see here that uh, we see when this takes place, we see that there's this mourning. But not only that, we notice here that look at what he does here in verse number 13. It says he took also up also the mantle of Elisha that fell from him. They're in a mess. They're they're steeped in idolatry. Think about the kings that they had during this time. They're wicked kings. Ahab was a wicked king. Jezebel, uh, she was wicked. Evil was running rampant. You think about the so-called sons of the prophet. I mean, where are they to be found? They're doing nothing. Elijah was it, and, and he's the, the one that was standing for God. And now it seems that what, what had been the only real promise in seeing anything good take place in Israel, he's gone. He's not there. And that's where our attention is shifted here to Elisha. Up to this point, we've not really heard a whole lot about him. He's been mentioned in different places, but he, he spent the last 10 to 12 years following this prophet Elijah. And he's no doubt, uh, he's heard some amazing things. He's seen some amazing things. Just a few verses earlier, we see that Elijah there, he's calling down uh, fire from heaven. And here in chapter two, we find Elijah, uh, he's experiencing an overwhelming sense of need. You think about the situation that he's in. His, his mentor is gone. He's alone. He's, he's the guy. Elisha, he's gone. It's up to Elisha now. And while we haven't heard much about Elisha up to this point, we do read in 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 16, it says, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in, my, in thy room. See, Elisha knew that he was to be the successor for Elijah. He knew he was the next guy up. He knew that uh, he was going to be the one who was going to be anointed in, in Elijah's stead. That means it's time for him to step up. I mean, you talk about some huge shoes to fill. You talk about a huge void to try to, to, to fill there. Just try to imagine what he must have been feeling knowing that he's got to fill the shoes of Elijah. The Elijah, the one who called down fire from heaven. That, that's his job now. He's got to be that guy. I mean, that, that's, that's a big task. And we see here his mourning in verse number 12. It says that when he saw this take place, saw him no more. It says he took hold of his own clothes and he rent them in two places. He's, he's outwardly expressing the loss that he's feeling, his grief, his mourning, again, for who he lost, for his, what his nation lost. But then when we notice, secondly, what he does here in verse number 13, it says that he took up also the mantle of Elijah. <laughs> immediately after renting his garments, he bends down, he picks up the one thing that Elijah had left behind, his mantle. 
And while the mantle itself was maybe of small monetary value, it was of great significance. Because that mantle, it represented Elijah's legacy. It represented all that God had done through Elijah. That mantle was with Elijah on his journeys. It was with him each time that God used him to do the miraculous. It was a reminder of all the miracles that God had performed in the past for Elijah. And I'm sure when Elisha is there, he's holding this mantle. He, he probably thought back to all the times he saw Elijah wearing it. He probably thought back to all the times uh, that, that Elijah stood maybe against those false prophets and saw the, the, the God of heaven send down, thun, uh, send down fire and, and then pictured there Elijah wearing that mantle. He thought back to the day that Elijah placed that mantle upon him and called him to follow him. It was a reminder of all that Elisha had witnessed God do through Elijah. And so we see this morning, we see the mantle, but then we see in verse 14, the miracle that takes place. It says that he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and he smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, what happens? They parted hither and thither and Elisha went over. And with the passing of Elijah, Elisha knew that He's next in line. He was the one who's going to have to stand in the gap. And here he is on the other side of the Jordan with, without his man of God to lead him, without instructions, without a guide, without a manual or a playbook on how to be the prophet in Israel. He didn't have any of that. It's just him alone there. And can you imagine what must have been going through his mind? How in the world am I supposed to do this? How, how, am, I, how am I going to make it without Elijah? God, I'm in a tough spot. God, I don't, I don't know what to do. God, I need you. That's what Elisha was expressing. I'm sure Elisha must have been thinking something along the lines of, man, God, if I'm ever going to get close, anything close to what I'm supposed to be, God, I'm going to need you to do a miracle in my life. God, I'm going to need you to come through it. Listen, have you ever been there before? You ever been in a spot where you thought, God, if you don't work a miracle, I'm in all sorts of trouble. You ever been in a position where humanly there was no solution to the problem you had? You ever, you ever been in a spot where uh, you, you said, man, I, I don't know uh, how things could possibly work out well in this situation. You ever found yourself in a place where you needed something and you maybe didn't even know what that something you needed was? That, that's where Elisha is. I think we can all identify with where he was. That, that's exactly where he was. He was in a position where he felt overwhelmed. He felt inadequate. He felt incapable. And he felt needy. And he needed God to intervene in his life. He needed God to do the miraculous in his life. And what does Elisha do? He does the only thing he knows to do. He takes that mantle. He smites the water. And he calls upon the God of Elijah. He calls upon Jehovah, the great I am, the one who had been everything that Elijah needed, the one who had come through for Elijah. And, I'm, and, and there as those waters part, we see the beginning of the many miracles that God does through the life of Elisha. And in this one verse here, in verse number 14, we see a truth that Elisha understood. And that is that the, it wasn't the man and it wasn't the mantle that was responsible for the miracles. It was God. It wasn't there was anything necessarily special about Elijah. It wasn't that there was anything special about that mantle. What was special was the God that Elijah served. And as Elisha picks up that mantle, he's appealing to the God that he knew was the source 
of all the miracles he saw in Elijah's life. The God to whom Elijah had pleaded and prayed was the same God that Elisha was calling, to, uh, calling upon to work once again. And you know what Elisha found out in that instance? He found out that the same God that was able to work miracles on Elijah's behalf was able to work miracles in his life. It had nothing to do with the man. It had nothing to do with the mantle, but had everything to do with God. You know, we need to be careful when we read the Bible because sometimes we get to thinking that, man, the people in the Bible who saw all these miracles, man, they were just more privileged before God than we were. Listen, don't think that the people in the Bible had a monopoly on all of God's miracles. It's not about the man. It's not about the mantle. The Bible tells us in James 5, 17, Elias, he was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not upon the earth by the space of three years and six months. It wasn't that Elisha was any more, Elijah was any more spiritual than us or special than us. Uh, he was more spiritual than us. He wasn't any more special than us. It was that he prayed more, and he believed that God could do something. He had faith in God to work. He believed that God could do something about it. And listen, the point is this, is that the same miracle working God of the Bible is the same miracle working God of today. God is able to do it today. Listen, God's power is not limited. His miracles aren't in short supply. Hey, aren't you thankful there's no supply chain issues when it comes to getting a miracle from heaven? Right. God's not affected by the recession. Right. I don't know about you, but I look around in the world that I live in and I see the turmoil and I see the troubles. And I think, man, God, we need some miracles today. God, we need you to show up today. Listen, it would be awesome to see God do some of these miracles. Now, I know that God doesn't work in the exact same types of ways that he did in the Bible. But I think sometimes it'd be cool if he did. I mean, imagine you're going out door knocking and you're talking to somebody and he's an atheist. He don't believe in God and you're trying to give him the gospel. He don't want to listen. He says, listen, buddy, step back. Call down fire from heaven, drains all the water in his pool, stakes left behind. Man, that'd be awesome. Amen. <clears throat> but, you know, God is still working miracles today. God is still able to work miracles today. And I can't help but look around the mess we find ourselves in. I think like Elisha, God, we need a miracle. God, we need you to work on our behalf. I look at the chaos and the turmoil of the world that we live in and think, man, God, we need a miracle. I look at the spiritual condition of our country and I think, God, we need a miracle. We need you to work. You look around it and you think about some of the things that the families in our church are, are dealing with and the burdens they're carrying and the illnesses and the trials. And we think, God, we need you to work. We need a miracle in, in this instance. You know, I don't have all the solution to all the problems we have. I don't, I don't have all the answers to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I'm just being honest with you. There are times in my life where I don't even know what to pray for. I just think, God, I, I don't know what the answer to this situation is. I don't know uh, what we need exactly other than, God, I need you to work. God, we need a miracle. We need you to intervene. And listen, I believe that God is still able to perform miracles. God, the God of Elisha, the God of Elisha, hey, he's still alive and well this morning. He's still just as powerful. Amen. And there are several areas where I wrote down, and this is kind of the, the, the crux of the message. This is just some areas where I'm praying that, God, we'll see some miracles. Because God's able to do it. We know that. We just have to believe him for it. I wrote down a couple areas where I'm praying that we see miracles. Number one, I wrote down, I'm praying that we see some money miracles. We need some money miracles. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that Canaan Baptist Church isn't the wealthiest church in America. I mean, it'd be great if we were, but we're just, we're just not. Right. We're normal people. None of us are millionaires. Um, hopefully you didn't hit the lottery because you shouldn't be playing it anyway. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for 
for those who faithfully give to the Lord. But man, there are needs that frankly, we don't, we don't have the ability to just write a check and, and oh, yep, take care of that. No big deal. Uh, I mean, if you look, I don't know how, sometimes I give, the, give people the benefit of the doubt that they actually pay attention to what's going on around here. Uh, but I don't know how, how much you pay attention to our campus and to the things that are happening, but there are some, some needs that we have. Uh, there are needs that our church has. Uh, all you got to do is start looking around the property and you'll start finding a bunch of them. But I wrote down a couple. I think about we have needs for more classroom space. We think about Sunday school this morning, right? We've got, what, two divisions over there in the fellowship hall. We've got some upstairs in the, in the eighth of the building. We've got a couple crammed into some small classrooms downstairs in the eighth of the building. We've got some over here. Uh, we, need, we need some classroom space. I think about uh, the, the school, right, and the, and the classrooms there. There's not a classroom in the eighth of the building that we don't use. We use all of them. Uh, in fact, this past week when we had the missionaries here, we had to put some up in the, in the clothes closet, the former clothes closet. It's cleaned out. There weren't clothes in there. Uh, but there's just not space. I mean, every room on our property is used almost every day, most of the day. Uh, whether somebody's teaching in a class, we've got lessons that happen in the lobby. We've got lessons that happen in here. We've got the cry room, the infant nursery. There's stuff going on all the time. Uh, and there's just a need for space. And buildings are expensive. We have need for fellowship space. If you were here at the missions banquet, uh, last week, and you were there for, for the dinner, which was great. You missed out if you didn't show up. Shame on you. Uh, but, I mean, man, we had that thing packed out. I mean, we, I don't think we could have fit any more tables in there. I know Yusuf was stressing about how the tables didn't look symmetrical because we crammed them all in there. Uh, but, I mean, that, that's just our church family. You imagine if we have a big day and we have lots of guests or, or we have other people come in. I mean, we're, we're maxed out. There's a need there. We need nursery space. I joke sometimes, I figured out why they say so many young people leave church after they graduate high school. It's because when they came as infants, we put them in the dungeon, and now they're traumatized the rest of their life. Uh, but we need, we need nursery space. We, need, we want places where people can come, and they can take their children, and they feel it's safe, it's clean. Uh, that's a need. Nursery is, ex, is, is expensive. There are parking lot repairs. You walk around the parking lot, it's, it's starting to fall apart in some places. There's cracks in other places, and, and we try to patch it, but... I don't know, I just, I just think the Lord's house, the parking lot at the Lord's house should have less potholes than the city of Atlanta. And, and we should meet the needs that we have and, and we should take care of uh, what God has given to us. And I'm not saying that we're neglectful in any way. I'm just saying that there are needs that we have. We have a, a lobby uh, that we're still trying to raise money to pay off that. That's a need, uh, a money need that we have. And that doesn't even touch the things that are constantly breaking and we're having to repair and just do maintenance on all those things. There are money needs, and you start looking at the money that comes in each week and, and what it's going to take to meet some of those, and it start, it's not long before you start realizing, man, we need a miracle. We need God to supply these needs. We need God uh, to come through. Like I said, buildings aren't cheap. Remodels, repairs, they're not cheap. Uh, you, you know, we, we don't have it uh, like that, but we need God to, to, to meet that need. We need God to do a miracle in that area. area. Uh, we need to see God provide. We don't have the means to just do it ourselves. Like I said, it'd be great if we had some, some millionaires that could just write checks and, and be done with that. But, uh, but we need God to work. That's not the case. And look, I get it. Regardless of how the news media tries to spin it, uh, we're living in a recession. Inflation is a real thing. Gas costs more. Groceries cost more. Bills cost more. No doubt you may have your own financial struggles. You're living paycheck to paycheck. You're trying to figure out, man, what am I going to do with my finances? How am I going to pay these bills that are coming due? And you're just thinking, man, God, I need a miracle in my life uh, in this area. Listen, can I remind you this morning that regardless of the need, the same God that provided for Elijah and the brook Cherith is the same God that can provide for you. 
The God that made sure that the widow's cruise of oil and the barrel of meal never ran out is able to provide for you. Listen, his name is still Jehovah Jireh. God is still able to provide and the Lord will provide. I think about this past week, even with the needs that we have, we saw God do a financial miracle. We, go, we saw God do a money miracle. We were praying for $12,000 to uh, be able to give there in that missions revival offering. And not only did God meet the need, but what did he do? He went exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And we exceeded that. And as we were, what did we see? As we were obedient and gave sacrificially, what did God do? He made up the difference. And I heard testimony after testimony of people saying, man, we, God put it on our heart that we wanted to give this amount of money. And, and we, were, we, were, we knew that that's what he wanted us to do. And we just gave it. And what did God do? God gave me a bonus I didn't expect. God made it up in this area. God provided some other means for us to have that money. Listen, God did miracles in our life. And he can do that for everyone. He can meet every one of those other needs that we mentioned. Psalm 37, verse 25, he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor seed begging bread. Psalm 84, 11, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And notice, those are conditional promises, by the way. Uh, those words, righteousness and uprightly. Listen, if you're robbing God and you're not faithful in tithing, that's not a promise for you. <coughs> but if you're giving to the Lord, if you're walking by faith, he promises he's going to provide. You know, I think about my own life. One second here. I know we've had times where we were, we're faithful to do what we're supposed to be doing. We're giving the way we're supposed to be doing. We're trying to live the way we're supposed to be living. And there, and there were needs that we had. We said, man, I don't know how we're going to meet that. There are, there are obligations that we have that I don't know how we're going to be able to, to pay for that. There are things that we, not just that we wanted, but things that we needed. Like there were legitimate needs. It wasn't just we were being selfish. But look, God provided in every one of those needs. Listen, I can stand here this morning by the grace of God and say, there's never been a day where I went to bed and I didn't have something to eat. There's never been a day in my life where I didn't have a place to lay my head. There's never been a day in my, head, in my life where I didn't have a roof over me. Listen, if you put God first, he promises he's going to take care of your needs. He's going to meet your needs. I remember my senior year of college when uh, God did a money miracle for me then. The policy at the college I went to was that in order to graduate, you had to have your balance paid off in full. They didn't want people graduating with debt, and that's a good thing. I'm, I'm for that. Uh, but I remember it was less than two weeks away from graduation, and I owed like $3,000, $3, and I'm thinking, I don't have $3,000. There's no way. That's, that's a huge number to me. And I remember thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to come up with that kind of money in two weeks. I don't have wealthy relatives, and the relatives I do have, they don't talk to me anyway. And uh, I don't know how in the world I'm going to come up with this amount of money. And I remember going to one of my friends, Jerome, and saying, hey, Jerome, will you pray with me? Uh, about this, I, I just, I need God to do something. You know, I hear all these stories about people getting checks in their mailbox and people just giving them money. I'm like, that's never happened for me before. And I just, I need God to work. And so we prayed and then we did the next most spiritual thing I could think of and we went to go get some donuts. And on the way back, less than an hour later, I get a phone call that my bill had been paid for. That was a miracle in my life. And listen, all I'm saying is that if God can provide for me, he can provide for you. I'm nothing special. There's, not, there's nothing, nothing inherently great about me, but God is faithful and God will meet the needs and God will provide just like he has promised to do. God has always been faithful to supply everything that we've needed. And when you put God to, to the test and you trust him to provide, he meets the need every time. That's who he is. Some, some money miracles. I wrote down another area we need some miracles. We need some medical miracles. We need some medical miracles. There are people that we know who are facing some serious, some pretty serious things. 
Some things we know about, some things maybe we don't. I can't say that I honestly know what it's like to, to deal with a disease or, or something where I don't have any control over it. I'm not able to fix it. I, I've been blessed with good health, but I know that while we may not know the answer, we know the great physician. We know the one who knows all the answers. When the doctors don't have the slightest clue as to what's going on or how to fix the problem, God knows every detail about it. We have people who've, who've gotten news and, and found out that they're dealing with cancer or the cancer that they had is now back. And, and that's tough. That's jarring to find out that kind of news, especially when it's someone that you love and suddenly your whole world is shaken. No one wants to get that kind of a news. We, we, we have people who are facing surgeries and recovering from surgeries and different procedures that they're having. The reality is that though we may have good health today, that could all change tomorrow as well. And while I don't know the outcome of every health situation, I do know that the God that, Eli that used Elijah to raise the widow's son from the dead, the God that used Elijah to heal Naaman of his leprosy, he's still able to heal. He's still in the healing business. And sometimes that miracle is not a complete healing. Sometimes it's just being able to get through another day. But I'm thankful that we serve a miracle-working God, and we need to see some medical miracles. <clears throat> I wrote down this. We need some ministry miracles. We need some ministry miracles. You think about Elisha and Elisha, what they, <coughs> what they saw there in Israel. Our world is in a mess. I mean, it don't take long. You turn on the news. It's probably not good for you anyway. But you turn on the news and you see our world is in a mess. There's a whole heap of problems. Idolatry abounds. Millions are following after false gods. They're, they're, ser they're serving themselves. Our country is about as spiritually lethargic as it could possibly be. We need a revival. <coughs> we need to see God work. And I believe that God wants to use our church to accomplish great things for him. I believe God wants to do great things here in our community. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just be a part of a church that just kind of goes through the motions. I want to be a part of a church that's passionate about reaching souls. I want my family to be a part of a church where people are walking the aisle, where they're getting saved, where we have buses full of lost kids and who are hearing the gospel, where lives are being changed, where they can see the difference that Christ can make in someone's life. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a church that's experiencing revival. You know, I, don't, I don't want to just read through about stories of revivals that have happened in the past. I want to see revivals take place in my life today. I want to be a part of a church where young people are on fire for the Lord, where they're surrendering their lives, where they're, they're going to be missionaries and they're going to start churches and revitalize churches. I want to be a part where, of a church where we're regularly seeing people experience deliverance from vices and from addictions and, and, and understanding what it means to live the victorious Christian life and experiencing that. I want to be a, church, a part of a church uh, where people are living for Jesus and they're happy about it. You know, you think about our church and where we're at, we're surrounded by approximately 200,000 people between Rockdale and Newton County. That means that if you just take our average attendance and compare it to the population of where we live, we're really only reaching over a little over one-tenth of a percent of the population. There's so much more that God can do, and I believe God wants to do. There are miracles that God wants to do and God uh, wants to perform, but if we're ever going to see our church reach that many people, we need God to intervene. We need God to do a miracle. We need to see God to do something where we can say like the psalmist, man, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. We need some ministry miracles. I wrote that. We need some marriage miracles. Marriages are under attack. Families are under attack. Satan would love nothing more than to see the home and the family structure that God designed destroyed. 
You think about the home as being attacked on all fronts. Every time we look around, marriage is under attack. You maybe heard of uh, this bill that's making its way through Congress, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. Anybody ever heard of that? You should, you should pay attention. It's very important because it's making its way through Congress right now. And, and it, what it would do is it would legalize homosexual marriage nationwide. And it would really threaten Christians who object to participating in homosexual wedding ceremonies. It would force all 50 states to recognize any marriage legally allowed in any other state, including homosexual marriage or group marriage. Listen, God instituted marriage to be exclusively between a man and a woman. And marriage is under attack. Satan is seeking to destroy it. The structure of the home is under attack. I mean, you can read there are multiple Marxist groups that have stated that their objective is to dismantle and to abolish the nuclear family. I think about black, groups like Black Lives Matter stated on their website before somebody forced them to remove it that they want to abolish the nuclear family. The family is under attack. Divorce rates are at an all-time high. Single parenthood is at an all-time high. Divorce rates among Christians is at an all-time high. Listen, there might be somebody here this, mor this morning. You feel like, man, my marriage is on the verge of collapse. There may be somebody here who thinks, man, my family, uh, maybe it looks good on the outside, but man, we are dysfunctional. Uh, emphasis on the fun, dysfunction. No, I'm just uh, but all you do, it seems like, is we fight. All we do is we argue. It's going to take a miracle to keep this thing together. Listen, God is able to do miracles. You need some marriage miracles? God specializes in reconciliation. He specializes in forgiveness. He specializes in restoration. He can take what's broken and he can make it whole again. And I'm thankful that we've had an emphasis on marriage these last few weeks with our marriage refresher because it's important. Strong marriages are essential for strong families and in turn strong churches. But we need uh, some miracles in this area. And, and then my last point here, and just to keep with the alliteration, I wrote, we need some America miracles. Amen. Our country needs some miracles. It disturbs me to see the spiritual state of our country. There was a time where our people in our country understood our dependency upon God. They recognized that we needed him. I think about Ben Franklin at the Constitutional Convention. He said this. He said, I've lived long, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this, that God governs the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? He said, man, there's no, we can't be anything apart from God. We need God if we're ever going to do anything great. He says, I therefore beg uh, beg leave to move that henceforth prayers and imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we pr proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in this service. What was he declaring? He's saying, we need God. And if we're going to lead this country in the right path, we need God. And our founding fathers recognized that. They understood that today. But America today doesn't seem to resemble anything of the vision that our founding fathers had for it back then. It seems like nowadays everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. Everybody has their own truth. I mean, can you imagine that we have people protesting in the streets demanding that they have the right to kill a baby in the womb? That's sick. Crime is at a record high. We see murders and killings increasing. Wickedness is becoming more and more in your face. And, and what's worse is that those things that are good, the things that are wholesome, are being called evil. Yeah. Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, who would have thought that in 2022 it'd be easier to get a drag queen into an elementary school than it is a Bible? Who would have thought that 
men pretending to be women would be considered normal. I mean, you have boys pretending to be girls who get invited to the White House to discuss abortion and climate change and gun legislation and criminal legal reform and economic instability on their 222nd day as a girl. Those are not the kind of people that we need determining the direction of our country. Those are the last people we need to be getting advice from. Who would have thought statements like, men can't get pregnant, would be flagged by fact checkers on social media? I mean, we need an awakening. We need a miracle. Our country is in a mess. And by the way, while we're talking about it, there's an election that's taking place. And you ought to be voting if you're a Christian. It's one of the, it's one of the areas you should be stewarding. But it's very important. And you say, well, it's already decided. One, one side already has a majority in the Senate. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. Oh, no, it, varies, matter, it matters very much what the outcome is. One vote, it could give party, the party in control the ability to end the filibuster which would allow them to push through bills like SB1, their, their, their number one priority bill, which would essentially strike down every election integrity law in the country. It would register millions of illegal aliens. It would allow, register, it would allow felons to register to vote. It would basically it would cause generational damage to our constitutional republic, something we would probably never recover from. That one vote could allow the party in control to fast-track judicial appointments. It could have uh, allowed them to fast-track putting liberal judges uh, who would rule against religious liberty in place. That one vote, here's a big one, it could allow that party in control to pack the Supreme Court. And you think about the Supreme Court that we have right now, the court that's overturned the Roe decision, a court that's ruled in favor of prayer in public schools. Uh, that, this is the one glimmer of hope that we have in our government right now. And that would, this, this election could jeopardize that. That's why it's so important for us to stewardship the rights that God has given to us as citizens of the United States to vote. It ought to be, listen, this election ought to be one of the easiest decisions for you ever. Because I, we've got voter guides uh, in the lobby there. And, it, and all this does, it doesn't tell you to vote for one or the other. It just shows you where they are. The very first one, abortion on demand. One says yes, the other says no. As Christians, it ought to be easy to go with the one that says, no, we're not for abortion on demand. We're not for somebody who's going to take the lives of, of the innocent and those in the womb. And, I, and listen, I recognize, too, that the answer to America's problem is not found in a political candidate. It's not found in another piece of legislation. It's not found in the government. Listen, the answer is we need God. We need God to intervene in our country. We need God to do a miracle. And, and, and this is exactly where Elisha was. He was in a spot where he needed God to work. And as Elisha followed Elijah... Right before Elijah was taken away, Elisha asked Elijah for a double portion of Elisha's spirit. And God granted him that. When you look at the miracles that Elisha performed, you know what you're going to find? It's exactly double the amount. It's twice the number of miracles. But you know, as you study the life of Elisha, another thing we notice is this, is that when Elijah found Elisha, you remember where he was? He was in the fields. He wasn't at Bible college. He wasn't out preaching. He was plowing a field. And though it may seem insignificant at first, the the Bible records that he's plowing behind 12 teams of oxen, 12 yoke of oxen. Now, in those days, that was something that was unique to those who had more wealth. They were more prosperous. He came from a a good family. And so when Elijah calls Elisha to follow him and to be the next one to take his place, at that point in his life, Elisha had it pretty good. It was pretty comfortable. He, He was living a pretty padded lifestyle. And, and I'm sure that 
the fina- that, the fin- uh, that financially he was probably in a very comfortable spot. And so in order to obey this prophetic call, it was meaning that he was going to have to do so at a considerable loss personally. He's going to, it's going to require sacrifice in order to follow Elijah, in order to be the next prophet that, that he would anoint. I mean, uh, he would mean that he would have to make some sacrifices. But you notice that Elisha had developed some biblical values and priorities and eternal perspectives that captured his heart and controlled what he did with his life. He didn't just live for the money. He didn't just live for what was comfortable. He didn't just live for what was predictable. He took a step of faith in following Elijah. You think about, I think about what pastor says, what he did. He burned the plows and he killed the cows, right? There's no turning back. I'm, I'm sold out. I'm all in uh, in this. Had Elisha, think about this, had Elisha not been willing to step out by faith, though it would mean sacrifices, he would have never experienced any of those miracles. He would have never seen God work the way that he did in his life. And I think so many times the reasons that we miss out on miracles in our life is because we're not willing to leave our comfort zone. We're not willing to walk by faith. We miss out on money miracles because we're not willing to get out of our comfort zone and walk by faith in the area of giving. We're not willing to take God up on his challenge to prove him. Listen, if we're going to see new buildings built, it's going to require sacrifice. You're not going to see money miracles if you're not giving. If we're going to see, uh, if we're going to be a part of medical miracles, uh, it's only going to come because we're praying. You're going to miss those miracles if you're failing to pray for those who are going through those difficulties. The reason we miss out on ministry miracles is because we're not willing to make the sacrifices necessary to get up on Saturday morning and go out and tell people about Jesus. You're not going to see soul winning miracles if you're not going. We miss out on marriage miracles because we're not willing to allow Christ to be the center of our marriage. We make marriage about us. We make it about what we can get out of it. We put up barriers uh, uh, by our pride that uh, prevent others from being able to help us. Listen, you're not going to see marriage miracles if you're not willing to do it God's way. Listen, God, when, when we work in our strength, when we work in our, in our own talents and in our abilities, you know what we get? We get what we're able to accomplish. When we try to do it ourselves, we get what we can do. But what we need isn't what we can do. What we need is what only God can do. We need what God can accomplish. There's no limit to what he can do. God is still a miracle-working God, but so many times I believe we put ourselves in positions where we make it difficult for God to work miracles in our life. We want to live in the realm of the explainable. We want to live in the, where it's comfortable. We want to live where it's predictable. And what is God trying to get us to do? He's trying to get us to live by faith, to walk by faith. There may be somebody here who says, man, this sounds good and all, you know, miracles, but you just don't know my situation. You know, you just, you just don't know. You know, this might be true for somebody else, but you just don't know the kinds of things that I'm dealing with. Well, congratulations. You found something that God can't do. I say this sarcastically, in case you couldn't tell. But, but, but really, what about your situation is so hard for God? You need someone raised up? Oh, wait, he's done that before. <laughs> you need some provision in, in an area? Oh, wait, God's done that a bunch of times. You have a relational situation that you need God to restore? Isn't he the one that reconciled sinful man with a holy God? What, what can't God do? What exactly is too hard for God 
about your situation. Listen, we need miracles. We need God to work. Let's not limit God by our unbelief. I think about one of the most condemning things that was said about Jesus' own city was that when he came there, it says in Matthew 13, verse 58, he did not many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Their unbelief, they limited him from working. Instead, let's follow after God wholeheartedly. Let's follow in faith, believing just as Elisha did. Let's cry out to God. Let's ask God for those miracles. And let's see God do those miracles in our life. Listen, is there anything too hard for God? We just sang about it this morning. The choir sang about it. With man, it's impossible. But with God, it can be done. God can meet those needs. You need a miracle this morning as the pianist comes to play the invitation. I want to invite everyone to stand together with their heads bowed and their eyes closed. I don't know everyone's situation this morning, but if you need a miracle from God, you need God to do a work in your life, why don't you come ask Him for it? Why don't you believe God for it? And if you're not saved, you know the greatest miracle you could ever experience is the miracle of salvation. Knowing that all your sins are forgiven, knowing that you have eternal life, that's the greatest miracle of all. And we'd be happy to show you from the Bible how you can know that. As the piano plays, I want to invite you this morning to come to do business with God. As God's spoken to your heart, would you respond to Him?